You're listening to Kayama Community Radio. Machtelt Harley was born in Holland and grew up in Indonesia till she was 10 and then came to Australia in the 1950s. Her lifelong experience of being an outsider led her to join Charlie Perkins' Freedom Ride in 1965 when she was an 18-year-old student at Sydney University. She now lives and works in Kayama as a printmaker and she's currently running an exhibition at her gallery in Holden Street to raise money for a scholarship she's setting up to send a student from Moree to art school at Sydney University to then return to Moree and teach potential artists. Gabby Cabral spoke to Machtelt about all the twists and turns in this fascinating story. Let's go back 55 years to the Freedom Ride of February 1965, led by the famous footballer and Indigenous rights activist Charlie Perkins. The aim was to expose and change the horrific discrimination of Aboriginal people in outback New South Wales. This was at its worst in Moree, where First Nations persons were banned from the local baths. The ride soon erupted into a nasty fight when the demonstrators were pelted with eggs, tomatoes, as well as verbal abuse. Now, the Freedom Ride bus was run out of town by the locals, but the ban was subsequently removed. I'm Gabriela Cabral, and I'm with Kayama-based artist Machteld Ali, who's holding an exhibition called Eggs and Tomatoes, in reference to those eggs and tomatoes that were pelted at the Indigenous demonstrators in Moree 55 years ago. Hello, Mactel. Oh, hello, Gabriela. Welcome to Kaima Community Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about the inspiration for this project. Right. Okay, the inspiration, it, did, it does start where Gabriela starts. So I'll take up where you, where you left. Uh, it was absolutely horrific. We never had any idea that it was going to become so violent and quite terrifying, especially when we were driven off the road. The bus driver deserted us there and we were all pretty frightened by the whole experience. Anyway, in 2015, Michael Spence, the Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University, organised a reenactment of this Freedom Ride, as well as dinners and all sorts of other occasions. And at that reenactment, arrival in Moree was so markedly different, dramatically different. The entire road was lined with Aboriginal children in our red student activities for Aborigines T-shirts with beautiful clear eyes, whereas, of course, previously the eyes were all infected looking happy. We marched into, t- into the town hall and as we were doing so, the Aboriginal persons would throw their arms around our necks. You changed our lives. You let us know that you knew we were here. You recognised us. And this was such a moving experience. I thought, well, there's something I can do. I believe very strongly in art and its power, basically, to change people's lives and give meaning to lives but also that the Aboriginal art is, in my view, their strongest point, their strongest talent, and incredibly sophisticated. So I feel that's that's the lever out of the current situation. Therefore, I want to encourage this. Um, I would like to uh, raise enough money to send an Aboriginal person from Moree, the Greater Moree, to art school and go back, hopefully, as an art teacher. So that's my drive. I think it took me about 50 years to realise why initially I was entranced, interested in this, in this whole issue. And that's that I too 
a result of diaspora and under, under, really could identify with these people's cultural displacement which I too suffered or went through as a young person coming here from a Dutch culture and suddenly being expected you know, to, to change my colours, uh, which didn't sit very well at all. So I think that's what we have in common. Absolutely. Really understanding what it's like to be dragged out of your culture and suddenly be immersed in another. And for these people, it's never Stone Age to be suddenly into you know, high-tech internet age. Not only that, but with different family parameters with different yeah. ways of dealing with life and completely different value systems indeed this is a massive change and you, you can't just expect that to happen like that and our role is to respect and learn from what they have like with the whole bushfire issue for example Kiama community radio for the community by the community
track was called Dream Intention by Pearl Noir from her album Phoenix Pearl. We're listening to Gabby Cabral talking to Kayama artist Machtild Harley. Machtild, how much do you remember of your childhood in Indonesia? Uh, the first thing that actually comes to mind is that we were surrounded with the Muslim religion but also the native sort of animism and as a young child I was very frightened in Indonesia because the Babus, the servants who looked after me as a child, would tell me stories about this enormous Satan character that would come and visit you at night and had hair on his leg which was like claws. So I was a frightened child. I remember coming to Australia being terrified of the dark. (laughs) So that was a strong impression. I think otherwise the art affected me because it was all around us and not until much later did somebody here say, I can tell that you've have a strong Indonesian influence because my work is very two-dimensional and has lots of detail, which is like the Indonesian art. Otherwise, it was a very much, I suppose, again, a, a diasporic sort of experience because we were on the fringes of society. Uh, the Dutch had already been ousted, so the, the Dutch were unpopular, but at the same time, we had lots of servants to look after us. My mother actually ran the, the local cultural centre in the old 
Portuguese fort in Macassar, which is now known as Ujung Pandang. And she actually started my love of reading because she wasn't a reader herself. And running the library, she needed to know the content of the books. So she'd come home with a big crate full of children's books and say, Mahdoud, you read them and give me a pressy so I know what they're about. And I think they're my strong love of reading and my uh, strong affinity with Dutch culture, but also knowledge of Greek mythology and, and that sort of thing. I read, and that was the thing I did, I read. There wasn't much social life other than going to school. And that was sort of the main influence of living in Indonesia for me. I suppose you're right, the fact that you do a lot of printing. You know, the the Indonesian and Malay culture have that tradition of the batik. That's and, right. And that also was something... It all works that, in. That's right. That's right. And also, I think, very, a very cultural uh, society as well. My childhood was, was unusual and probably explained some of my eccentricities, is that we lived out of town. We didn't live in a Dutch enclave like other Dutch people did. We were always very much social isolates. My family were just unit unto themselves. And we had the cemetery next to us where we used to go for walks, unless there was a funeral being carried on, when it was quite dangerous to be in the cemetery because, you know, we were considered hostile. And next to that was the insane asylum. And we'd sometimes go and have a look, and that was a bit of a showpiece, I suppose all in their striped suits behind bars and once a week the insane asylum would get a general clean-up and the occupants would be chucked out into the street and they would come to the house we'd give them cups of coffee. So I guess this is not the usual sort of childhood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I wonder how much that's changed. I haven't been back. It would be fascinating. I would be fascinated to go back. And was Australia in the 50s when you arrived, was that a culture shock? It was a huge culture shock. It was extremely different to what it is now because at the time we were just considered the absolute bottom of the social rung because we are immigrants who were considered new Australians and we'd go home and my father said, we are not new Australians, we are old Europeans. <laughs> Get it right? <laughs> because my family was sort of, if anything, intellectual and cultural snobs. I mean, we were very happy to be here. We loved being here because of the, the climate and the general affluence. But we really had to work hard to establish ourselves socially. How is difference spotted? Because you're obviously very white and you're not visibly foreign. And my parents were highly educated, speaking good English when they arrived. And yet still, it was, you know, watermarks around the ankles, which is the derogatory way of referring to Dutch people because they're always busy putting their fingers in the dark to stop the water flooding, right? So (laughs) my first husband always referred to me as watermarks around the ankles, whereas the change is very evident in number two husband who considers me exotic. That is wonderful. We've done the full circle and we always said, he who laughs last, laughs best, and I'm laughing. (laughs) How did you come to be a student at Sydney Uni at 18? Okay, well, the parents said to me very early on, which actually was very empowering, they said to me when I was about 11, if you want to get anywhere, Machtel, you better work hard because we can't afford to put you through uni. So I worked hard. I was always a good student, academic, loved learning. Yeah, got to Commonwealth Scholarship, and that's where you went, Sydney University in 1964. Sydney University was for arts, and I loved arts, so that's where I went. And then, you know, 1965, up comes Charlie Perkins, with his freedom ride, and he buckled along for a bit of an adventure. Did you know him? How did you No, No, I met him on the freedom ride, and he was wonderful. We were all madly in love with Charlie. You know, he was just so absolutely... how did it come about, the fact that your involvement with the freedom ride? Oh, okay, well, 
Actually, a friend of mine was part of the, the club. There was a student action for Aborigines, a university club, and she said, look, this club is organising this freedom. I, are you interested? I said, oh, I'm very interested. It does sound fascinating, and, you know, I could see social welfare, and I was curious. How basically. wonderful. And in the end, how did that perhaps change or or affect you, that, that whole experience? It did, because I sort of thought, you know, at 18 I knew everything, uh, like a lot of 18-year-olds, and I understood social problems. And when I saw what was actually happening, I realised I knew absolutely nothing. And what an eye-opener that human beings could live in the same society and be living so badly. On these reserves where you get, you know, all the children with eye infections, you know, huts made out of bits of cardboard and corrugated iron with dirt-packed floors, having to import water and pay for water with a tip next to them and being treated as a different social class, you know, not being allowed into the RSL, not being allowed into the swimming pool, not being allowed into the picture theatres except, you know, in the front row or something and just basically treated like, like animals or worse. It was just amazing. It was, yeah, it was really remarkable. Do you think the Freedom Ride had an impact? I think it had an enormous impact. First of all, the mayor said, OK, we'll open the pool. The moment we're out of town, phone called, no, we've, we've gone back. So then we went back and that's when, we, that's when we had that terrible reception with the eggs and the tomatoes and everything else. Then Charlie kept on negotiating and after, I don't know, maybe a couple of months or whatever, it was revoked permanently. It made a huge change and all the Aborigines there will say that to you. They say, this is the biggest event in Aboriginal history, I suppose, other than our arrival here. It was a watershed, at the time of which we had no idea what we were doing. But we did know, like every day, on the front page of all the papers, it was the first news item. It was the whole page full. It was incredibly dramatic. It absolutely, was incredibly dramatic. absolutely. KCR. When the leaves begin to fall like right through your front door When the grass is going green And you know what I mean Well I see it all, I see it all, I see it all When the stars begin to hide Well I was on your side And I see it all, I see it all, I see it all When the train is on its track You know I'm rolling back And I see it all, I see it all, I see it all And everybody knows you are my best friend And the reality TV show you love's on at six I sit there watching cringe while I'm trying to pretend I see it all, I see it all, I see it all That I see it all, I see it all, I see it all Cause I see it all, I see it all, I see it all 
That track was called 6pm by Joe Mungovan. Let's return now to Gabby Cabral talking to Machtelt Harley about her exhibition Eggs and Tomatoes. So the members of your workshops in Kayama have contributed. Correct. Firstly, I went out to Mori and did two workshops that were free for the participants on the condition they donated the work minus one for themselves to the cause. So they worked really hard. But then since then, any workshops I've had here, I've allowed people, if they wish, to contribute a piece. And most of the people in both workshops, many of them are existing artists who are just simply learning a different skill, which is the printmaking skill, which has the advantage that one image can go a long way because you can do 15 prints or so of the one image. So they were all very open to helping out? Yes, Oh, yes, yes. And I've got Katrina Humphreys, who's the wonderful mayor of Maori, backing me and actually gave me a grant for materials for the first one. The Town Art Gallery, the Bank Art Museum of Maori, also staged the first exhibition and made about 7000 with that exhibition towards the cause. The money I make from this exhibition, I don't even see it. It's put into the, the Maori Gallery bank account straight away. And I'm going to Maury tomorrow to speak to the prospective school students who might be eligible and will we'll have the meeting in, inside the um, gallery. So well. how will this work exactly? Oh, OK. I've, I've been in touch with the schools, explained what I'm doing, and said, can I please speak to your Aboriginal art students to enthuse them, to talk to them, possibly even to mentor them through the process and explain to them how the scholarship is going to work. It's going to be my scholarship in a way. Sydney University will uh, administer it and they have accommodation in the uh, residencies for these students where there are other Aborigines because the problem with the uh, Aboriginal persons leaving home is they get very, very homesick. They're very family-oriented. So in these colleges there are other groups of Aborigines. They really are very much supported through the process. And then I would still expect to have contact with them. They would come here for the weekend if that was interesting. And the scholarship, there'll be different criteria to get this particular scholarship. Maybe the the academic side is not going to be that important, but the person's enthusiasm and sense of dedication will be heavily weighted, right? So we get what we want. Absolutely. And do you hope that this scholarship will be an ongoing annual scholarship? That that is definitely my hope. I'm establishing connections with the town. I'm going to see the woman who runs the Indigenous Employment Agency and hopefully do another workshop maybe with more Indigenous artists and help them actually make more money out of their art by doing prints. Yeah, I hope it to be an ongoing thing if I can move it. And so you're looking at... Exhibiting these works, when and where? Oh, okay. The exhibition opens this Saturday, actually. Gareth Ward is going to do the official opening on Saturday the 12th at 11am. I'm just asking people to contact me first so I can do the COVID thing properly. And our community, how how can we help? Buy the art. (laughs) (laughs) Buy the art. It's cheap. I've, I've, we've put low prices on these, got these lovely etchings, only 120, magnificent hardwood frames, and the, the highest in the other room will go to 290. 
so it, it's actually, you know, it's very modestly priced. And how can listeners contact you to attend or to donate? Oh, Do you and, have a website? I've got a website, but also email address. I think email is probably... And an email address. The email is going to be the most effective, and they just, you know, I'll just agree on the time. Well, good luck with all that, and, oh, thank uh, and thank you so much for all the work you're doing. My pleasure, my pleasure. Lovely thank talking you. to you. Thank you. The exhibition, Eggs and Tomatoes, runs till the 16th of December at the Tempest Gallery, 21 Holden Avenue in Kiama. Gareth Ward will be officially opening the exhibition at 11am on Saturday, December 12th. And if you'd like to attend, Machteld can be contacted via her website, which is www.machteldharley.com. That's M-A-C-H-T-E-L-D-H-A-L-I. Hello, I'm Candy Anderson from Kiama Community Radio. Join me every Friday for What's On in the Kiama LGA for the following week. Our purpose is to keep you updated with events and activities that will get you out and about and connecting with people and places in our fabulous area. If you have an event that you would like to tell the community about, Email us on kcradiocontent at gmail.com. I look forward to having you tune in soon and perhaps making our weekly What's On your regular go-to place for keeping in touch with people, places and happenings in the Kiama LGA. You've been listening to Kiama Community Radio.